This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. R. Stephen Notley. Dr. Notley is Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins on the New York campus of Nyack College the director of the graduate programs of ancient Judaism and Christian origins there. He received his PhD from Hebrew University, where he studied with David Flusser. Notley lived 16 years in Jerusalem, during which time he was the founding chair of the New Testament Studies Program at the Jerusalem University College. He's the author of many books and articles. He continues collaborative research and publication with Israeli scholars in the fields of historical geography and ancient Judaism and Christian origins. Among his lists of publications, he co-authored with Flusser the historical biography of Jesus, the Sage of Galilee, Rediscovering Jesus' Genius, with Anson Rainey, the monumental biblical atlas, The Sacred Bridge, Carta's Atlas of the Biblical World, with Ze'ev Safrai, an annotated translation of Eusebius's important description of Roman Palestine, Eusebius's Onomastikon. More recently, he rejoined Safrai for their second work, a pioneering collection of, and translation of the earliest rabbinic parables, 
that provide the literary and religious context for the parables of Jesus. This book is known as the Parable of the Sages. Dr. Notley is also the educational director for the El Araj Beit excavations on the shores of the Lake of Galilee. He was my professor, one of my great friends, and I want to welcome him today to the podcast. Dr. Notley, welcome. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So based on your research with uh, Professor Safrai on the parables in general, we want to talk a bit today about parables. So what brought you to the study of parables? Let's start there. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I really didn't set out to focus on the parables. Um, as you were a student at the time, so you will remember that at uh, Jerusalem University College, we had a visiting professor, uh, Dr. Hannah Safrai, who taught a course for us on you know, the parables of Jesus and early Jewish parables, looking at them and comparing them, uh, using rabbinic parables to shed light on gospel parables. And uh, she would talk about the various ideas, motifs that were expressed in the rabbinic parables. And the students, of course, would say, well, where are they? And unfortunately, many, many parables, Jewish parables, are remain in Hebrew. They're not translated. And so she translated some, but still there was really not many to, to draw a comparison. And so Khan and I had a conversation and we said, let's collaborate. Let's get gather a collection of these parables that will serve as a tool for people who want to look at the beginnings of, of uh, the use of parables in Jewish life and also shedding light on gospel parables, parables of Jesus. Um, and we we sort of began that, and it, it 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 moved very slowly. We both had other publication projects we were involved in, and so we didn't it didn't move as quickly as either one of us would have liked. But every time I was back in Jerusalem, we would talk a little bit more. Tragically, Hannah died, uh, and the project was sort of. I thought that's it. That's the end of the project, and I sent word to her brother Zev Safrai who's a professor at Bar-Ilan University, and asked Zev, I said, do you know what happened to the file? It'd be unfortunate if they just went off. There's probably not many there, but we can, you know, again, it shouldn't just be cast aside. He was well aware of the project, and so he went and secured the parables, and then he wrote me, and he said, in Hannah's honor, in her memory, I will take on this project in her place. And so uh, Zev is sort of the opposite personality. He's a bit of a bulldozer. He just sort of forges <laughs> ahead. And so six weeks later, I show up in Jerusalem, and he hands me a file of over 400 parables. And that began my work for the next two and a half years, translating the parables working in a bilingual fashion with Ze'ev, translating his Hebrew annotations, augmenting them when I felt it was appropriate to draw connections to gospel parables. Um, but the, the focus really of the parables is um, Jewish parables, the rabbinic parables. And that, that was what we were trying to do. We were trying to create a corpus that could be used. And to my knowledge, it's the only anthology of early rabbinic parables, 
parables of the Tanaim that exist in any language. It's never been done, which is a huge gap, if you will. So um, I, I tell people sometimes I feel like in scholarship I'm the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. <laughs> is that, you know, there's another leak, so I put another finger in. I have various projects, but it always seems like there are things that others should have done that are far more capable. I, I do not put myself forward as a as a you know a parable expert. I just I'm immersed in them and I there was a need to be that needed to be addressed and we've done that. And so as you well know there's a continuing project now to sort of ask the question, so what? What does that mean for uh, how we read the gospel parables? What impact is there now as we read the gospel parables in light of 456 early Jewish parables? Um, and so that's, and I've been involved in that for over 10 years now in terms of sort of investigating that and looking at the impact and, and how it influences our study of, of gospel parables. Well, let me then ask you kind of even a foundational question. What are parables? The parables are generally a short story. Sometimes we only have fragments of those stories that remain, but generally they're a small story with a with a comparison. That's where the mashal is, is drawing a comparison between two things. Somewhat, sometimes I present it as sort of a literary metaphor. You're describing something through a story or a narrative, and it, it, it has a message to it as well. There's usually a moral, a nimshal in Hebrew, an application. It's wanting to address a certain point, and it uses the story to make that point. That would be the simple—I mean, there are various characteristics to it. Sometimes parables will self-identify themselves. Oftentimes they will, but not always. And if you go through a list of characteristics of the parables— you're not required to tick off every characteristic in every parable. Sometimes there are elements that are missing. Sometimes they alter a bit. But it's an, an ancient story type that's distinctive to Jewish society and the land of Israel. All of our rabbinic parables originate from the land of Israel. Even Flusser pointed out that even the, the great treasure of Jewish knowledge in Babylonia uh, the rabbis who were there did not produce a single parable. They all come from the land of Israel. They're all in Hebrew, which of course impacts our understanding of gospel parables because almost no one assumes that Jesus is telling his parables in Hebrew. They always either assume they're Aramaic or Greek. And I'm quick to point out is that we do not have a single example of a rabbinic parable in Aramaic, or certainly not Greek, they are distinctively Hebrew. So when we, again, it has further implications that I, subjects I know you're interested in, that if you're wanting to talk about the language of Jesus, people ask you, what proof do you have that Jesus spoke Hebrew? I said, parables. That's, that's the simplest answer I know, because we have no parables in any other language other than Hebrew. How would you respond to those who would say, okay, so the, the parables are in Hebrew, but they're coming from rabbinic works, and this is being generated by the rabbinic academy, it's coming from the synagogue, from the house of study. Um, how does this prove that Jesus is speaking Hebrew on the day-to-day? -day? How would you respond to something like that? A couple of things. First of all, the, your listeners should know that 
even in rabbinic literature that's in Aramaic, the parts of the Talmud that are in Aramaic, the Gemara, if you have a parable in there, it will shift. It will shift to Hebrew. Uh, within certain societies, the sort of sociolinguistic aspects that certain things are said or done, performed in particular languages. So just because they're being produced by rabbis does not mean they're going to be produced only in Hebrew. It's because that's the language in which they're told. I mean, I can give other examples. And example I usually throw out is my wife comes from a Mennonite Brethren background, and they her parents, grandparents spoke a very distinctive German called Low German, Plattdeutsch, and it's a colloquial sort of a mix between Dutch and German. But when they went to church, they used Luther's High German in church. They didn't use the everyday language. They shifted to a high German. And so, again, in particular cultures and societies, certain things will be done in particular languages. And so we have the parables of the rabbis in Hebrew. And the subject matter is not language of the academy. I would beg to differ a little bit in saying that we have to speak of the development of the parable. When we speak of the parable in the in the Second Temple period, in the days of Jesus, we talk about Jesus' parables there, an ideal example of what Flusser refers to as the golden age of parables, of early rabbinic parables. As time developed, the parables evolved as we move into the second century of the Common Era. They increase by number, but they decrease in quality. Uh, again, that wouldn't be my assessment. That'd be a, the assessment of Flusser, Safrai. What do you think that they mean by that, that they decrease in terms of quality? Because oftentimes they, and that was, the, that was where I was going with that, is that use them in connection with the teaching in the synagogue. Originally, if you read the, the parables in the Gospels, what's fascinating is that of all the parables that are told in the Gospel, I, I believe there's only one that is told in the setting of a synagogue, which is, of course, the place of study, place of learning. Parables are more at home in popular settings, whether it's at dinner, you know, just being out and about, if you will. Uh, it's not they were not intended for the academy. They weren't intended in some kind of medieval monastic setting. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that type of setting for the parables. They're, they're popular stories. Uh, and for that reason, to be quite honest, the, the rabbis in the early times, in the early days, were not very receptive to the value of the parable because anyone can tell a story. You don't have to spend 20 years in a yeshiva or studying, studying the scripture to be able to tell a parable. Anyone can do it. It's a popular means of teaching. And so as, as more and more value and emphasis was placed on Torah study, comparatively, parables sort of took second place. It, it really didn't have a, a prominent role. So what you tend to find in the parables as we move into the second century is that parables are adapted to fit that synagogue setting or that teaching setting. So what we find is forcing of Scripture on parables. Please note that in the Gospels and Jesus's parables, passages from the Hebrew Bible are sort of echoing in the background, if you will. 
the themes, the ideas from the Hebrew Bible are certainly there, but Scripture is not part of the parables. Jesus isn't quoting Scripture when he's telling parables. That's unlike the parables that we find in the second century. As we're moving forward, suddenly we're, in some instances, I would say, forcing parables, uh, forcing Scripture onto parables. A number of times Zeb would comment and say, this is ill-fitting. It doesn't belong. This isn't part of the original parable. This has been adapted to fit into the priorities of the day, you know, the things that people felt were important, which was, again, the study of the Torah. And so you would have verses inserted. They reshaped the parables. Uh, but that is not the situation in the earliest parables. The earliest parables are not dependent upon scripture they're not they're not used as midrash which is interpretation they're not that's not their primary function whereas it, as we move forward that does become a a major function of parables is that they're used uh to interpret scripture and to sort of preach if you will to take this passage of scripture apply a parable to it so that they can explain the scripture to the congregation that's a later development not part of the parable in its earlier stage. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the fact that the initially the world of the parable was outside of the synagogue, it was walking on a road, fishing on a boat, being in the marketplace, the fact sitting at a dinner table, the fact that that is being communicated in Hebrew tells us that Hebrew was definitely part of the language environment of the land of Israel in the first century. And then on top of that, as we begin to find the formation of rabbinic ideas, literature, and so forth, beginning in like the second, third, fourth, fifth, etc. centuries, that the rabbis are kind of taking over the parables and reshaping them to fit more the ideas of Torah study. Have I understood you correctly there? Yes, exactly. That's they. So I like to say they, they adopt and adapt the parable. And that's the, you know, particularly in the wake of the, the destruction of the temple and a greater, not that, not that Torah study was unimportant prior to 70, but, but still the, the sort of the, the trauma, if you will, of, Korbanabayat, the destruction of the temple, it caused an emphasis on Torah study. Torah study became even more central to the Jewish community, and those priorities had an effect on the parables, the parables being used within within society. But you're right, your assessment, you know, your understanding of what I was saying is correct, that that is not the situation earlier. And the fact that you have parables used in informal, popular settings in the Gospels and in early Jewish examples, rabbinic examples, tells us that Hebrew was being used in everyday life. And I would say beyond that is the, the subject matter. Subject matter is not erudition. It's not philosophical ideas. It's fishing. It's, you know, it's farming. It's uh, relationships. It, it's everyday life. That's the fabric of the parables. What do what kinds of themes or what tend to be the focus? I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with 
ancient Judaism, so in the Second Temple period and after the destruction of the, the temple, there's a certain sense where there is an importance to, to the study of the Torah and the interpretation and the application of it. How do parables fit thematically within the various ideas, theological constructs, if you will, that we see emerging within ancient Judaism? If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible book club and Bible study is a virtual on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the book club and Bible study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week a members-only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low-stress, no-fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. That's where the rubber hits the road. Your question plays into the finishing of my story with working with Zev after being buried in rabbinic parables for two and a half years, I went back to teaching parables in the classroom. And, you know, I used various textbooks, which I knew and loved. But now, when they dealt with the gospel parables, they were interpreting them as expressing ideas, motifs, that I paused and I said, I just finished working with 456 parables they don't address those subjects. Those are not their interests. Those are not uh, the concerns that parables are used to address. And it forced me to go back, and you and I know this because you had me come teach a class mm -hmm. in Israel, and I said, only if I can rethink entirely the gospel parables, what they might be addressing. And you gave me the freedom to do that. And so when I sat down and I sort of started from scratch. I said, okay, if I'm reading these parables in light of the themes, the concerns, the motifs that I know from these other Jewish parables, how could these be read? For me, I arrived at about, if you will, six or seven bullet points. And those, interestingly enough, make up the theological content 
of Jesus's teaching. I tell my students, if you want to understand the theology of Jesus, read the parables. That's where they are. That's what parables that's what parables are. They are vehicles for conveying theological ideas. And those are conveyed in the parables of Jesus. So you you deal with the issues of forgiveness and you deal with the issue of I think also charity. Uh, you deal with the ideas. For me, one of my favorite themes is the emerging idea of the value of the individual. Reflect is sort of a development off the idea that we are created in God's image, which is something many Christians don't realize. It's such a universal idea. I mean, I, last night I heard in the president's address, he repeated it that we're all created in God's image. And this is such a common notion, everyone says. We don't realize that in the first century, that was a revolutionary idea. It is not an idea prominent in the Hebrew Bible and is emerging. And so we began to find the emphasis of not just the fact that we're creating God's image, but the, the intrinsic, immeasurable value of each individual so that you get the you know, the parable of the lost one coin, the parable of the lost one sheep. And you, you get these ideas where it, I think it expressly conveys the idea of the intrinsic value of the one and the importance of that on the lips of Jesus. This is usually in the context with dealing with Pharisees, Pharisaic counterparts, who are questioning some of his actions, some of his behavior, particularly dining in settings among those who probably were not as scrupulous about issues of ritual purity. It's seldom noticed that whenever Jesus is accused of fraternizing or mixing with sinners, it's always at a dining setting. There's always food involved. And it's not about moral issues. It's more about uh, ritual purity issues. And Jesus weighs in with this idea of the intrinsic value of the one, in essence, to say the importance of this person is such that I'm willing to put myself in a setting I wouldn't otherwise find myself. It sort of reminds me one time, Flusser made a comment about Paul, that he understood the heart of Paul, that Paul was willing to go and put himself in situations that he probably wouldn't otherwise have allowed himself, you know, going into the Hellenistic world because of the importance of proclaiming the Word of God. And I think in some ways that's sort of parallel to what we find with Jesus. Jesus is being criticized for putting himself in situations, uh, but he, he expresses, he says, I do that because of the intrinsic value of this individual and the possibility to draw them back into relationship with God. You've mentioned several times reading the parables, and you even brought up as you began to go back into the classroom teaching parables, some of the, what you considered kind of misreadings that were being given in various works. How do you read a parable in your estimation? I I know you've said it's a story that has a point, but how should one read it? And what are some of the misconceptions that you find, whether it's New Testament scholars, whether it's pastors using or applying when they come to reading 
particularly the parables of Jesus in light of what you know after having done this work and translated these 456 rabbinic parables? In terms of how we read the parables, how we understand them, interpret them, for me, one of the the way that I'm approaching it in terms of the work that I've I've spent too much time on, I need to get it finished, but the the, the way that I'm addressing it is introducing the ideas that existed in Second Temple period Judaism, what people are saying, what people are thinking, whether it's on, you know, forgiveness or other issues. And then once I've helped the reader to understand what are the issues at play, then I bring the parable to bear because parables are told in a context. They have meaning because they speak to a particular context. I remember years ago, I was lecturing, this is before I got involved in parables, I was lecturing on parables, as it happened to be, at King's College, University of London, and I began to talk about the meaning in Jesus's parables, and a student held up his hand and said, how can you talk about Jesus's parables having a particular meaning? They can mean whatever we want them to mean. And I, I said, well, that's true. And that's, that's why we can get 27 different sermons <laughs> on the same parable and go 27 different directions. And everybody's free to do that. I don't have any problem with evangelist or a pastor taking a parable and using it to speak to the issues in their congregation. But that's a different question than what you and I are talking about. And that is, what did Jesus mean? Or we could say it another way. Those who first heard that parable roll off of Jesus's lips, how did they understand it? What issues was he speaking to? Right. And that's, that's a different question altogether. And for that, you have to become familiar with what are the issues of the day? What, what are the concerns? He's living in a time of foreign occupation and redemptive yearnings. And how do we reconcile that? And there were how do we live out our life of faith in, in very difficult, complex situations? And Jesus addresses those. He's not detached from the world in which he lived. And so I think one of the important things is to become familiar with what are the issues that they were living with and addressing in the Second Temple period, and how do Jesus's parables speak to those? And what we find is that Oftentimes, if I can say it, Jesus isn't alone. Right. He's giving voice to the approach of others around him. He's not a lone wolf. But we also find that he was very skilled at what he did. And sometimes he will take, he will build on those other ideas that were being expressed around him and take them one more step in a sort of a, a breathtaking step with his parables. So there's this, this sort of climbing back into the setting of the first century and trying to read the parables from the inside out. It's not an easy task. I don't mean to suggest that it's simplistic, you know, that it's it's simple, it's a challenge. And as you know, every day you can have read not just parables, but any passage, you can have read it a hundred times, and something will trigger within you a rethinking of, it will change everything. Suddenly there will right. be a change, 
and you'll read it with fresh eyes. Pluser always said, when you read the Gospels, you should come to them every day and read them fresh, as if you've never read them before. Otherwise, you get in a rut. So that, I think, is a real challenge for us. Uh, the, the mistaken readings, I would say that probably the most controversial one I run into is the whole issue of eschatology, both from, from more critical scholars and, and from conservative audiences, is that we've become so accustomed to reading Jesus's parables as eschatology, as expressing eschatological concerns or messages. And that's one of the remarkable things about the 456 parables in our collection, is that eschatology really isn't there. It's not that Jews living in those times didn't have a certain understanding or hope regarding right. God's redemption and the end of days, but it, parables were not the venue for discussing that. Uh, they were used for, if you will, more like wisdom literature. They're more practical in their presentation. So that means, that for me was probably the most shocking part for me, unsettling for me. I had to sort of step back and ask and, and say, okay, how might I understand this parable? You think of the, the five foolish maidens. You know, uh, you have five who have their oil prepared and five run out. And so we tend to, you know, I mean, how many books do we have on, this is talking about the second coming, uh, the end of, right. end of days, and it's not necessary. You can read them eschatologically, just like the 27 sermons I spoke about earlier. You can take it in that direction if you choose, but their eschatology is not inherent in the parables. Uh, instead, there's another overriding concern, motif, that we find in rabbinic literature, and that we find also in the parables, is that one should be prepared to give an account for the life you've lived. Right. None of us has tomorrow. Today may be it. And the, the, the concerns of the sages was, are you prepared to give an account for the life that you've lived? Are you prepared? And that's the issue, is the suddenness, the unexpected nature of the end of life. So, yes, the parables are talking about the end, but it's not the end of days. It's the end of life. It's the unexpected. And that is—and Jesus's parables fit in very, very well with that motif that we find in Jewish parables. A couple of things just quickly. First of all, could you speak a, a little bit about the— practice that often happens where people will read parables in a very allegorical way. Um, you know, my experience would be that parables are not really an allegory. And I'll let you, if you care to, share Flusser's analogy with it. But uh, um, could you say a word about being careful not to allegorize the parables? That has tended to be the approach, the reading of Christian reading of parables, certainly for the majority of church history. In the last century, sort of biblical scholarship has pushed back against that, I think wisely so. Sometimes you sort of wonder if the pendulum hasn't swung in a, in a different direction. But there, typically a parable will have a message, a central point to be made. doesn't mean there can't be 
you know, some sort of secondary things there, but they're all supporting the main point of the parable. One has to refrain from sort of extended allegory where each part of the story, each character in the story represents something else, the setting represents something else, and we get into this very deep, complex literary form, and that's not how parables are structured. They're fairly simple in their literary structure. They make a point, they sort of deliver it, and that's it's finished. And they tend to be also a bit conservative in their structure. This is why we, we find parallels. Let's say we find a rabbinic parable that looks similar to a parable that we find that Jesus has told. It's because parables tend to, they, they tend to have a conservative structure about them that doesn't change. It's very simplistic, but I tell students, it's like, it's like knock-knock jokes. There's a certain structure that <laughs> everybody, I, it sounds silly, I know, but there's a certain structure to it that you don't want to transgress. You have to follow, you know, knock-knock, who's there? It has to follow along a certain way. And again, I'm being facetious here, but parables are not fluid in the sense that you can sort of that they tend, and this is one of the reasons Flusser said that rabbinic parables could and should be used to look at gospel parables, because they're conservative in their preservation, so that it doesn't matter if it's being told two, 200 years later, oftentimes it will have that same structure to it, the same ideas attached to it. Again, they'll be adapted and you have to look at those, and you have to see how they fit in their particular historical, religious, cultural context. And, you know, so that when we compare Jewish parables and gospel parables, we should expect to see differences, but we shouldn't be surprised to see similarities either. So it's, uh, you have to look at it carefully in there. But yeah, I mean, one of the the danger of over-allegorizing Jesus' parables, I mean, that's something endemic, really, in, I think, in much of Christianity. They're, the meaning is obvious. And when it's not, when there's some question, you find interpretation. Flusser actually, unlike a lot of scholars who reject, let's say, with the, the parable of the sower, the, the later explanation, modern scholars would reject that as being a product of the later church sort of imposing right. uh, its ideas. Flusser rejected that. He said, no, this is authentic. This is, um, and typically you don't have an explanation. And the reason you don't is that people got it. They understood. I think some of it is that not that many of us live in an agrarian society. So we're, we've been sort of removed from the, the images there and don't always grasp them. But there are a couple of parables where the ideas need teasing out, and Jesus does that. He actually lays that out there. But that's that's sort of the exception to the rule. Usually, they're they're fairly straightforward. One final question, because we're we're coming to the end of our time here. Can you speak about the fact that at times, and Flusser has drawn attention to this that within both rabbinic parables and in the parables of Jesus, particularly as preserved in Luke's gospel, you will sometimes have the protagonist of the parable being either amoral or even immoral. Can you speak to that a little bit? And even what's the rhetorical value of doing that? 
I think sometimes the reason that the protagonist there, in a sense, is more think of the unjust judge, for instance, let's take that. It's the, the idea is, you know, if an unjust judge will give in and, and give in to the pleas, then how much more would God? So it's sort of, a, in a sense, set up as a bit of a contrast to that. And it's, I think sometimes, it depends on the individual parables, but I think that's sometimes what is at work is it's trying to, it's trying to make a, draw a contrast. And to be honest, some of the parables are, they're done in such a way that there, there's literary creativity there. I should say it's literary, it's actually oral, but there's a creativity to try to hold their attention as to hold the crowd's attention, the audience's attention. Uh, so sometimes there will be sown within the parable a bit of tension in the story. How is it going to be resolved? Usually they are, are resolved. Sometimes they're not resolved. If you go back and look at the parables of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew Gospel, chapter 20, that parable actually is left unresolved. Right. Uh, we have, you know, we have a response by the owner. We don't actually resolve the ethical question there. Uh, it's the story is left open-ended, and that happens on more than one occasion. I should just mention as well, since you brought up Luke's Gospel, I'll be quick on this, is that we do have some parables that are, I would say, only in Luke's Gospel, we have stories, not parables. There's a whole other sort of small grouping called exempla. Uh, the Hebrew equivalent is ma'aseh in rabbinic literature. Right. They only appear in Luke's Gospel. Luke is actually a phenomenal source for these stories and these parables you know, that are coming out of the teachings of Jesus. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Notley, for joining us today. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark, M-A-R-C, Turnage, T-U-R-N-A-G-E. See you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. It's Mark. One of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing, not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. 
offering the finest on-site expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com to learn more about Biblical Expeditions and upcoming trips and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.